The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. It was All Saints Day, November 1st, 1755, 9.40 in the morning when the earthquake struck. It happened in Lisbon, Portugal. Historians estimate that today we would reckon it a nine on the Richter scale, one of the most powerful earthquakes ever to happen. On that November morning, the earthquake, the fire, and the tsunami killed 100,000 people in Lisbon. It was a catastrophe almost unlike what the world had seen. And it caused a great crisis of faith for a great many people who had to come to grips with the fact of this great horrible loss and tragedy. People looked around the world and saw this devastation and for many of them, it led them to kind of a disheartening conclusion. See, they looked and they said, well, you know what? If God is totally in control of this world, well, then God can't be totally good because 100,000 people are dead because of an earthquake. Or if you're willing to say that God is totally good, well, then God must not totally be in control of this world because, again, 100,000 people dead. People looked at this catastrophe and started to try to rationalize in their mind how an all-powerful God and suffering can both exist at the same time. God can be all-powerful or he can be good, but he just can't be both. It was that earthquake and the news of it that caused one young Lutheran boy to start questioning his faith. His name was Johann, and when he heard about the Lisbon disaster, he struggled with this dilemma of if God is good, he must not be in control. If God is control, he must not be good. Johann, he grew up, he's the guy you know by the name of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who was a man of German letters, who eventually became probably the most influential person in European culture during the century in which he lived. But the interesting thing is this young man was born in a Lutheran home, raised in the faith, but because he couldn't come to grips with the dilemma, if God is good, he must not be in control, or if God is in control, he must not be good, he rejected his faith as a result of that earthquake. Even though he'd come from a good Christian home, he exchanged his soul for the devil's lie that something we might consider bad can't possibly come from God. Now, this is a hugely important topic. As brothers and sisters, I know you, and I know right now some of you are dealing with suffering in your life. Some of you are dealing with broken relationships or broken body. Some of you are dealing with, well, trouble that's come into your life that's been unasked for and honestly unearned. You know what it's like to get bad news out of the blue. You know what it's like, that, that gut-wrenching feeling in your stomach when you hear words that you're never going to unhear. And my bet is that most of you have also known what it's like to be on your knees in prayer, and the first word, the first word for your Heavenly Father is, why? Lord, why? 
And here's the thing, for us Christians, it's not that we don't think bad things can happen in the world. I think all of us recognize we are living in a world that's been broken by sin. We recognize that bad stuff happens out there. Ah, the issue, the issue for you and me is not when bad stuff happens out there. It's when bad stuff happens to me or to mine. And there's a reason for that. Because you know what? It's a rainy Sunday morning, and guess where you are? You're at church. You believe in God. You're his child. He says he loves you. You said you love him. And if God loves you and you love God, well, can't you expect a little, a little better treatment than what's coming down the pike to you right now? Can't you? Why is this, not why is this happening, or why is this happening to me? I'm your child. You say you love me. Why is this happening to me? You know, the, the account of Job that was in our first reading is an account of somebody, if you've heard anything about Job, you've probably heard about how here's a guy that suffered. Here's a guy that lost a lot. But the most arresting part of the account of Job for Christians like you and me is the kind of man Job was. Now, you go to Job chapter 1, and it describes Job, yes, certainly as blessed, as wealthy, called him the greatest man of all the peoples of the East, but that's not what matters. What matters is when the Bible describes him as upright, righteous, a devout man who shunned evil, fulfilled God's will. It's the fact that Job lived devoutly before God, that he was a, an example of piety in the midst of an impious world, it's that very fact that highlights this amazing paradox when a really good man has all sorts of really, really bad things happen to him. It's the fact that he's a man whom God said, this man I'm pleased with. And then, unimaginable tragedy. I mean, in one day, a messenger comes and says, the raiders came, they've taken your herds and they've slaughtered all your servants. And while he was still speaking, a messenger came and said, lightning fell from heaven and struck your herds, and they're gone. You're destitute. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, your children, they were all gathered to celebrate and went home, and, and a windstorm came, and the house collapsed, and they're dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. In an instant, he lost everything. The only thing Job had left was his health, which wasn't going to last, and his wife. And honestly, if you read the book of Job, you're going to realize she's never going to be nominated for spouse of the year, not one time. Neither one of those two things was going to provide any comfort to Job. He had lost it all. Then he says these words that I think maybe if you read some from the book of Job or heard words, you might have heard these. It's a, in response to this tragedy, Job says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now those are, those are wonderful words. Those are words that only faith could produce. But you know, sometimes we end the story of Job there and forget that those words didn't stay on Job's lips. Because you know what? Things didn't get better. Things got worse. 
as his health turned and his wife turned and that brokenness and emptiness didn't get any better and it turns out that suffering that persists can grind away at our faith, grind away at those beautiful words we're willing to say. Job eventually begins to question what this God of his is really like if he lets this happen to a good man. So friends of Job, they show up to mourn with him, and uh, they, for a while, just sat with him and wept with him, didn't say any words, and that was, was really good. Actually, when Job's friends weren't talking, that's when they were at their best. Um, turns out once they started talking, they didn't do so well. This, this is probably something for us to remember when we're dealing with grieving friends or loved ones. You don't have to try to explain it. You don't have to try to say words to make it better. Just being there and praying with them and weeping with them, that, that might be just enough. Because you see what happened with Job's friends is as soon as they started talking, well, that's when the trouble started. Because you see, they were trying to figure out, in, in the text you see they're trying to reason out um, why all of this happened to Job. We, we know this, right? When something bad happens in your life, you start thinking, why? Why did, why did this happen? You know, and here's the thing. We, we sometimes forget, you and I, when we read the book of Job, we get the backstory from chapter 1. We know what happened before, right? Where God, in chapter 1, says, look at Job, I love this man. He is an excellent example of the Christian life. Look at this guy. I love him. So God loves Job, we know that. And number two, we also know that God then allowed suffering to come into the life of a man that he loved. We get to hear the conversation between God and the devil if we didn't have that backstory, maybe we'd be more like you and I are when trouble comes into our life and we start trying to figure out why it's there. Right? That's what Job's friends did. And you know, they came to an interesting conclusion. They were trying to reason out why bad things would happen to good people, and they came to the conclusion that, well, they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen because someone had it coming. So you, Job, you must have done something. Must have done something caused this trouble. You know, Job denies it. He, he defends himself. He says, no, I'm completely blameless in all of this. I didn't deserve it. And then he starts asking the questions. His, those words of naked I came and naked I'll leave, those are all gone. And now he's asking God, Lord, why are you letting this happen to a good man? Lord, give me some answers. Explain to me why it is that you're letting this happen to me because I've got questions and I need answers from you. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. This trouble came to me unasked, unearned. It's interesting how Job ends his rant. 37 chapters into the book, this is what Job says. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Bold words. Before the echo of his words fell off, you could hear the distant rumbles of thunder. A storm was coming. And with it, with it was coming the God that Job wanted to ask questions of. After 37 chapters of listening to Job and his friends alternatively trying to blame or justify God, after 37 chapters, God shows up. Says, you got some questions? All right, Job, you ready? 
Are you ready? Here's the shocking answer God gives to Job. He answers Job out of the storm and he says, the problem, Job, is that you are too dim. You're too obtuse. You're too short-sighted to understand that even this, even this, I can work out for your blessing and my glory. So, questions? Well, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to have some questions for you. I'm going to ask you, and you can answer me some questions, Job. All right, how about this one, Job? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Huh? Where were you? Where were you when I molded the earth like clay? Can you do that, Job? Can you move mountains and valleys? Can you mold the earth? Do you bring out the constellations at night like I do, Job? Answer me. Come on, answer. You want to know, you want to know everything. Now tell me this. Do you bring out the constellations? Were you there when I stretched a measuring line across the oceans and said, this far your proud waves can go and no further? Were you, Job? No? Then maybe, just maybe, you should allow for the fact that a God as great as me, that much greater than you, just might know more than you do. Maybe. God goes on like this for four chapters. Not explaining himself, not excusing himself, but just showing Job that even in things that seem bad to Job, God still rules. Now this is hugely important, and maybe the one big takeaway we want from this is understanding, first of all, that God doesn't work um, by karma, right? The idea that um, if I put bad juju out in the universe, I'm going to get bad juju back. Or you know, you got to get, you got to do good to get good. And that the idea of karma is that bad things happen to me because I've done something wrong, right? Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. When your life is broken, or you're suffering, or a relationship is in shambles, or you lose a loved one, or if you just feel that it's coming. God says that this is nothing from your life that's payback for wrong you've done. That's not how God works. He does not pay you back for past sins. And he's willing to prove it to you. He's willing to prove to you that God doesn't work on karma. All right, you know how he does this? He points you to the one man who had the best karma ever. One man who never did anything wrong. One man who always did everything right. Who never put anything out in the universe except good stuff who never had anything that needed payback for, the one best man who ever lived. He takes Jesus and he points you to him. And you know where he points you to him at? Nailed to a cross, suffering for the sins of the world. Now, if God worked based on karma, nothing bad should have happened to that man because he's the only man with good karma. Nothing bad. But instead, the best man in the world had the worst possible thing happen to him. If God worked on karma, it would not work like that, right? Perfect man nailed to the cross. If God worked on karma, that never would have been. But now think about this. It's not only that God doesn't work based on karma. I want you to think about something else. Think about that suffering of the best man ever on the cross. You take a look at that, and on its surface, we can all agree that's a bad thing that an innocent person is executed for someone else. It's a bad thing to be pinned hand and feet to a cross and die of asphyxiation. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing to suffer for doing something you've never done. It looks bad. 
But what's the true reality of what's happening there? What's the true reality that's happening behind this thing that seems bad to you and me? God was working forgiveness, peace, and new life for you and for every one of your loved ones and for every man, woman, and child on this planet. God took the one thing that looked like the worst thing in the world, the death of the Son of God, and he used it to give you the greatest gift ever possible. God can work through the absolutely worst thing for your ultimate best. So don't you think, don't you think if you have something in your life right now, something that seems bad, don't you think that this God can find a way to bless you even through this? Maybe we can't understand how he could do it. Why did you get cancer? I don't know. Why did you lose a loved one? I don't know the answer to that either. Why are you in pain? I don't know. But I wasn't there when he laid the earth's foundations either. Those questions are way above my pay grade, but I'll tell you what, they are not way above God's. The God who laid the earth's foundation and molds the earth like clay, he promises you, promises you, that he can even take the things that seem bad in our life and use them for our good. And so I know that the God who used the worst thing in the world for my greatest good, I know he will not leave you alone in your suffering. And one day, one day he's going to fix it. He's going to cure your disease. He's going to give your loved ones back with you. He's going to put together all the broken parts of your life. Sometimes he makes us wait. But he always makes it better. Always. I mean, we Christians, we know that Jesus never promised us a trouble-free life. I mean, Jesus, I mean, think about the promise he gave his disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. But then he said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. So then he calls on people like you and me to follow a cross-shattered Savior. A Savior who was not afraid to bear suffering or pain, whatever came. He calls on you and me to pick up our crosses, whatever they might be, and follow. I don't know how God's going to bless you through them. I don't. Way above my pay grade, but not way above his. You know, Job found that out. You know, it, here's the thing. I don't know if you'll ever get to see how God uses some of those crosses for your blessing. He doesn't promise we'll see them this side of heaven. But I tell you what, he does promise you will see them. You will see them the day that you walk through that door where we leave all our crosses behind. You will see on that day what it means when we leave all suffering and brokenness behind and move to the plan that God has had for us since the beginning. Until that day, he, he gives us the picture of Job so we can know. Because remember how Job ended, right? Story of Job ends, you know, God shows up, says, Job, you don't understand a thing about what I'm saying. And Job goes... You're right. I spoke out of turn. I don't know a single thing, Lord. I repent of this. Uh, Lord, have mercy on me. And God says, I'm going to forgive you. It's going to be fine. And then God restores him. And then God makes him even, blesses him even more than he was before when he was the greatest man of the peoples of the East. And it's interesting. Uh, at the very end of the book of Job, it goes through and it lists all the, all the blessings that God gave Job. And each one was double. So like, uh, I forget what the numbers are right now, but you know, he had so many thousand camel. And then at the end of the book, he's got twice as many, right? Twice as many camels and twice as many flocks and twice as many herds. Then it gets to the children. 
Remember, Job had 10 children, and they died. So you would think, if it follows the pattern, God would give him twice as many children. Job would have 20 new children. It's interesting. He, uh, God didn't do that. He just gave him 10. 10 more. But that was double. Because those first 10 children weren't lost. They were just waiting. Waiting on the other side of that door at which we get to leave all of our crosses before we enter it. That's the truth of what God has in store for you, that even if the cross you carry is a cross you carry right on through death, look at Job. His children would say, I will not die but live, and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. God grant it. Amen.